Hey, welcome to part two of my discussion with Laura Oyer and Rachel Lewis Marlowe on eating disorders and the polyvagal theory. My name is Justin Sinceri. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and your fellow polyvagal nerd. Welcome to part two of episode 58 of the polyvagal podcast. And just a real quick warning as usual, heads up on this episode, um, similar to the last one, I think it's safe, but also some pretty heavy stuff here and some pieces might come crashing down for you. Hopefully they come down gently like a Tetris piece into the, you know, puzzle below, but it might be a heavier crash for you. So I want to make sure that you are putting yourself first and that you can hear this with some love, actually lots of love and compassion for yourself before you go deeper into the episode. It's safe. No, it, we, we discussed this in very respectful and safe ways, but you know, just by the nature of the topic, it's a, it can be pretty heavy. So a lot of times what we're seeing, I don't know if you're familiar with the term, the faux window, right? Steve Terrell and Cain talk about that. Other people have have used the term as well. You know, the window of tolerance, right? That kind of goes with the, we can overlap polyvagal and the window of tolerance where the ventral vagal is in that window of optimal arousal and above is the, the sympathetic and below is the dorsal vagal state, right? Well, there's, there's, there's something that we can call the faux window, which is where it's like we can, we learn how to adapt to make it kind of look like we're regulated. Right. But what we're really seeing is an incongruency and it is being driven by, um, you know, this is where we've got the gas and the, and the, and the brake on at the same time. It's a more functional freeze where we are willing ourselves and we're following rules and we're doing that to keep from going all the way out in either direction. And that, I would say that's where a lot of eating disorder clients live. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. That's where they live. And that's one of the reasons why they are so attached to those behaviors is because that is what is keeping them from going all the way out. And they don't have enough attachment capacity to go all the way in. Mm-hmm. So they're sort of stuck in this strange, like, you know, sort of stratosphere. You know, they they don't, they, you know, they aren't quite outside of, of the gravitational pull, right? Mm-hmm. But they haven't landed on the earth. And they when don't I, want to spin out. And I think, too, something that um, just, again, as I'm thinking program development and, and how, like, just thinking lots of program development, you know, ideas for, for our program. I think one of the things too, that's really interesting is the current model that a lot of places use is, you know, you meet in one therapy, you meet therapy for, you know, hour, 45 minutes, mm-hmm. somewhere there once a week. And then a week later I see you or two weeks later I see you and they don't have any co-regulators outside and they don't even know what that looks like or feels like. And so over the course of treatment, I become one of the primary co-regulators, you know, to help them feel that initially, I don't want that to be forever. Um, but, but then it becomes like, and then, and then they, you know, start like what, like they maybe need to call or they need to text or, and we don't really, you know, we have boundaries and policies around what we can and can't do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I do feel like there's this piece of like, what do I do here? Because they're in this window. I'm trying to say, don't, you know, let's try not to use these behaviors that, do work in some ways, but don't work in other ways for you, right? They cause a lot of problems. 
and they don't have a lot of co-regulators and I become that, which as a therapist, that's a good thing for a while for me to help be that co-regulator, right? Mm-hmm. But then, I mean, one hour a week of co-regulation is really hard to like, make these changes. So I think right. that's another piece too. It's an, another angle here of it, but just in terms of how do we serve these folks well, it's, it's kind of a struggle for me because, right. you know, I'm not a 24-7 co-regulator and... I mean, nor should I be right. Like the, that's not appropriate. Um, no. And it's a really, it's a, it's a hard transition, I think, to stop and to, to find things that help that, you know, get back into that ventral vagal when they're in that little window, the foot window. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we do a lot of is, so, um, is to work with sensory input and how do we nourish the sensory system to, to build that regulation, right? Because it's not just, in you know relationship with others but it's also in relationship with our just our environment and so things like weighted lap pads weighted um you know different kinds of aromatherapy certain kinds of movement a lot of proprios you know often people are needing a lot of proprioceptive um input in specific ways and then we also are looking at these very basic, it's called the relational cycle, and it's developmental movement patterns that are the, the building blocks, the somatic building blocks for relationship. And we look at where are those, where have they been truncated, and how do people adapt? And so we're starting to build capacity to fully embody the relational movement patterns that are necessary to bring people into full relationship with others themselves and with food. So um, there are there are things that you can do to help facilitate that. So it's not dependent on just them attuning to you and you bringing them down, but that they can start to have different kinds of sensory input that can help build that help to bring in to, you know, if they're in a dorsal state, things that they can do to, to increase and bring them up, not into a sympathetic, but truly up into the, the vagus the mental vagal engagement so that they're coming from dorsal into the window and coming down into the window. So there's, there's different kinds of inputs, but it's body based. It's not, you know, one of the, one of the, the challenges of DBT is that it's got all of these things, but God help us with the acronyms. I mean, you have to oh, have your yeah. frontal, you have to have your frontal <laughs> cortex online, right. To do that. And even in the full window, it's not fully online, right? There is cognition, but it's not—it's not creative cognition. It's not—it's it, not a full frontal cortex involvement, which is what we need for so much of traditional therapy. All of the cognitive behavioral therapy requires that you, you know, are accessing that, and we're wanting to come in on the body level, on the sensory motor level. That's—that's. That's, it seems like the opposite of. Actually, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know how much generally accepted in uh, treating eating disorders nowadays, but it seems like there's a lot of, like you said earlier, the um, the cognitive piece of it. And I know for me, when I years ago when I treated my couple of clients, it was you know um, there was a trauma and there was the idea of being thinner, which came from the mom's pressure to look a certain way, and it's like, oh, I figured it out. Those are the pieces I have figured out. I've solved the puzzle, but that that was all. That was just my own therapeutic musings versus what you're talking about, Rachel, which is their actual experience of their bodies 
and well, it bodies in space, their self, their selves. And there's a whole, and, and a, that was just, that was a very inexperienced um, treatment, but it seems like there was a whole bunch that I was missing out on, my supervisor was, was missing out on. And uh, yeah, it, it wasn't very client focused based on the way you're describing things. Well, and something else too, I think that I'm, I mean, that I think I've seen so much too, or, or just kind of Rachel with what you're talking about is, is the client themselves is so wise and that they're using body-based things to regulate, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. Eating, not eating or eating or, you know, purging, exercising, you know, vomiting, like those are body-based things. And so to come in and say, think this way, do this, this cognitive exercise, I just, I can, I can tell you, like, I, I just, I myself roll my eyes at that, some of that now, because I just feel like it's not working <laughs> or it can, it doesn't work enough to feel like I'm doing anything that's good, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And in many ways, traditional um, approaches can sort of encourage people to, it's like a, we want you to socially, ex, soci, in a socially acceptable way, dissociate from your body. Hmm. Right. As opposed, right. As opposed to how do we help you actually listen to the wisdom of your body? Let's listen to what it's saying, because most of the time what it's saying is I'm scared. I'm scared either because I can't fully defend myself or I can't actually find safety. I, you know, and, and it's, it's important for us to start to help them differentiate between what we might call flight energy or fight energy, right? It may not be fight energy. It may be incomplete, you know, attach energy, right? It's just dysregulated. And so, you know, I've got, you know, wonderful stories about that, you know, of, of helping somebody come into a pushing with their foot and with their arms, right? We put them in this thing called a cozy caterpillar, which is a sensory processing um, tool. And, you know, she was a flight risk. She, she would go to treatment and she would run and she would go and she would leave. And, you know, if we looked at it purely from, oh, that's flight energy, you know, and she's, she's, we're, we're missing is that what she's actually trying to do is to push and land and have something come back and meet her with just the right kind of contact. That's the co-regulation piece, right? Is that she's getting that, right? And 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 she did that. I mean, it doesn't always work this quick or, or this clearly, but we put her in there. She pushed down with her head. She got in it. It was, and she said, "This is the first time I don't feel like I have to run, and I can actually follow the conversation we're having." It was. And I was like, yeah, okay, let's look at what's going on in your nervous system, right? We have to stay curious. We have to be curious. When it comes to treating eating disorders nowadays, it, it's, well, for, for my experience back then, it was a very panicky, non-curious, very evaluative. Yeah, we were, there was like weigh-ins and there was medication and there was evaluations and it was not a curious, calm connected thing it was a lot a lot of to me like panic energy just sort of floating around mm -hmm. similar experience or similar <laughs> yeah. understandings yeah. is that yeah 
I mean, it, in many ways, but especially when I would talk with families, when I was working at, um, at the treatment center and we would do family days, I, and I would do family therapy too. I was always curious about how people handled fear because in many ways, that's what eating disorders are. It is when the whole system is running on a fear setting rather than a curiosity setting and, you know, a, a creative setting. Right. Um, and um, when I would, but there's there's reason to be concerned, right? There's there's a high lethality to eating disorders, and and there's also this co-dysregulation of fear, building fear, building fear, building fear, and and especially when you're trying to connect to someone who's not able to connect with you, whether you're trying it as a child to caretaker, caretaker to child, it can spiral. And then there is the fear base of dealing with insurance companies and the sense of just urgency and we have to fix and the whole industry is fear-based. And what I try and tell people is you cannot scare someone out of being afraid. Just, I've never seen. Yeah, that. no, that makes sense. Yeah, it doesn't keep me from trying sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, you had a lot more to to go into. Um, what else do you, must you have addressed? I would love both of your thoughts on the actual. So, so we've been talking a little bit more about about maybe the the not eating sometimes. So let's talk about like the actual the for those individuals who go towards food right as a regulator and and maybe on a very biological vagus nerve. Um, I'd love if either of you you have some some sense of what what happens internally when someone eats nervous system state. Talk to me about physiology. What shifts? What happens there? This is all Rachel. <laughs> okay, Rachel. So I'll give you some things, and okay. please know I am not a neuroscientist. So um, I think that there are a couple things too we have to understand about about eating, is that we're looking at not just digestion, but we're looking at ingestion, and there's a lot that goes on in the process of ingestion that impacts the vagus nerve, right? Okay. And so, and we have to also look where in the, what we call, we talk about this idea of the action cycle are, is the process getting disrupted? So are people able to get accurate hunger and fullness cues? Okay. So, so much information, most of the information through the vagus nerve is coming from the organs to the brain, right? I think it's 80% yes. coming up yeah. to the brain, right? So what's happening there in terms of accurate information? Is it actually getting up, right? Are they in a, um, if, you know, if they're in a sympathetic state and the dorsal system is not really registering, right, or the ventral vagal, you know, they aren't getting information about fullness and, and hunger and fullness accurately, right? There's also the question of ingestion. Okay, so chewing, right, activates the, the, the muscles. It impacts the ear. It impacts the, the, the inner ear. 
you know, it can be very much about how do I either engage, bring me up from a dorsal state, right, or bring me down from a sympathetic state. So it can be either one of those things. And we're going to kind of look at what are they seeking to eat, right? What what kinds of foods are they are are their are their go to? Because there also can be things in the microbiome, right, mm-hmm. which can be affecting things as well. This is something I was wondering about. I'm glad you asked, Laura. It, so simply chewing actually activates or stimulates the ventral vagal system. So yeah. is it is it kind of like a feeling of connection or safety being activated? Yeah, I think it's an More attempt. Like, okay. It's like yeah, it's like yeah. You know, some people bite their fingernails. I mean, there's things that people will I grind chew. my teeth all the time. Yeah. Right. You know, like that. We're you know they'll. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It's like why we eat we eat popcorn at movies. You know. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Right. Why people chew, swallow, you know, what kinds of foods they're 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 seeking? How does that replicate aspects of attachment? Right. And relationship. And Anita Johnson does a beautiful job of, of looking at like the quality of foods mm-hmm. that people seek or don't seek. The, the other thing, you know, that we this is where the sensory system comes in. is so fascinating is that so most of our choices around around foods, preferences or or what we might even consider fear foods, foods we avoid has so much to do with what they look like and what they smell like and what the texture is, not just the taste, right? Taste is pretty actually kind of low on the totem pole actually when we're making food selection. But taste, um, specific tastes will send signals to specific digestive enzymes, right? So it's a way that our gut gets prepared for what we're eating, right? how all of that is wired is going to impact. There's another thing that happens, though, in terms of what we might think of as, as um, binge eating, right, where it's you're not really, you're eating beyond what your body is eating, right? Or you're, right? And that can have a lot to do with what we might consider like the next phase of eating, which is what do we select? Like, what is it okay for us to reach for? How directly can we, we move towards what we want? Okay. So, and this is, this is, does impact the, the vagus nerve from an attachment perspective, because if what we learn in relationship is, it's not okay for me to ask for what I want directly, right? If I'm either going to be redirected or I'm going to be, like, if I tell you what I want, I won't get it. Or if I tell you what I want, I will be shamed, right? I learn that wanting has danger associated with it, right? which is going to put me out of my window, my, my real window of ventral vagal. And just into the feeling that, of wanting? Just the feeling of wanting, right? And it's going to be linked to, again, that relational response, 
right? And so I can may I may be able to come forward with some kinds of wants, but not other kinds of wants. And that's when we build that faux window, right? Now I'm working with with a number of people where what they're being able to really identify is I'm not asking for what I want. I'm and so I'm never getting satisfied. Right. And what I, I what I say is like you can never have enough pretzels to quench your thirst. Right. And so you will stop eating those pretzels, not when your thirst is quenched, but when you are so uncomfortable, you can't eat or when you're so tired mm-hmm. or when you run out. Right. So that's another place. Right. Because when I want something. I have to go kind of offline that I'm not really hearing what I really want and I'm reaching for what is acceptable. Mm-hmm. And I think I, you, you kind of mentioned about Anita Johnst- Johnston's work and I know that piece has been very helpful for some clients in like decoding what is it, you know, if they are reaching for certain foods um, like she talks about, you know, if it's like chocolate, like, is it, and, and again, not that this is for everybody, right. But like, yeah. is it maybe a more like desire or, you know, um, intimacy or, or, you know, sexuality or, you know, or if I'm, I'm doing something like chewy, like, what am I chewing on? Like, am I thinking about something? What am I deciding on? And so really looking at that piece of it and trying to just sort of decode, like, what is that real need, you know, right, where they're right. using the food to meet the need versus what is the need? And and the and and that having somebody be with you and supporting the exploration of of want, right? Mm-hmm. Giving permission to want that is rewiring, right? You're building ventral vagal engagement while I am talking about want. Mm-hmm. That is corrective, mm-hmm. right? But it's you're building neural pathways there. And it can take there's you know, there's a sort of a process of how do we make that from an an a an an implicit experience to more of an explicit experience, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm a step behind both of you here. The want <laughs> sorry. That's okay. It's okay. The want, the, come back to the pretzel example because I feel like I missed it. Uh-huh. The want is not the pretzel is what you're saying. Is, right. is that what you're saying? Actually, right. question mark. Right. Is, that, right. is like, that what you're saying? Yeah. Like so. Let me see if I can if I can come up with another example. Um, well, Laura was saying the want could be a number of things. It could be anything. It could be anything. Right. Okay. Right? That what that can't be acted on, so, or so is one of one of the things that often happens with 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 food too is that if what I'm wanting is connection with a human being, but I can't get that. I can't. I that's too scary. That's not all. I'm not allowed to. It's unaccept. You know what? Yeah. I'm. I'm 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 isolated in my house because we've got a pandemic. I mean, it can be anything, right? right? There's some danger associated with going directly for what I want. I may reach for food because it's going to give me some sense of pleasure and and it 
the act of ingestion, right, is itself a bonding experience in our nervous system, right? Because we're yeah. mammals, right? So we are linked. Ingestion goes with relationship and not being alone in the world and being with a safe other, the act of ingesting food. And so I may eat now. It is not going to actually feed the hunger I have for companionship. So I'm going to, it's going to need a lot of food for me to feel satisfied because I'm not actually, I'm not going to actually feel satisfied. I'm just going to feel stuffed or exhausted or I'm going to run out of food. Does that answer? That, that does. Thank you. Do, do you differentiate between want and like a biological need or biological drive? Yeah. Are, are, are you separating but, the two? I do. And also, um, it's so very, it, it, it can, um, it can kind of leapfrog because a want, there is a want is a certain relationship with something. So like I may look, go to a store and look at that and go, Oh, I want that. Right. I may same cup, right. I may be thirsty, right? And there's a water fountain. Now I, or, you know, a whatever, a, a pitcher of water, let's say. Now I need that cup mm -hmm. in order, if I'm going to take a drink of water from that water pitcher, I need the cup in order to do that. I may want that cup for something else. Right. I mean, it's like the same the same object can be a want or a need depending upon what the outcome is. Right. Does yeah. that make sense? It does. Um, when it comes to the need for uh, connection, could that be then? Um, well, it sounds like it could be served by or the behavioral adaptation or could be to to have the ingestion process which quasi feels the, not really feels the need for connection, but it sort of quasi feels it. Does that make sense? Or yeah, it, mean, it's, it, it makes that faux window. Is that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So here's a, here's a question for you now, maybe similar jumping over here. So I think one of the sort of light bulb moments I had was looking like, as I was, you know, doing my deep dive into polyvagal theory and the vagus nerve and, looking at like, okay, testing that, like I've, you know, read about, they test the gag reflex to, to test the vagus nerve. And it started making me thinking about like, okay, like purging, vomiting, how does this, because a lot of times people, you know, families um, or friends are like, what, <laughs> what, what, like, this doesn't make any sense. Like why would, you know, and they, and it looks a lot, they look at it a lot as just, you know, vomiting the food. So that way, that, that cue of danger, if you want to call it that, right, the food being a cue of danger, it is no longer now there. And so we feel better. But to me, I'm like, I think there's something a lot more, you know, a lot deeper physiologically happening here that really is regulating the nervous system. So any thoughts on that? I think the first thing I want to say is that the biggest gift that I think polyvagal theory gives us in many ways is that it validates what we've known forever, which is relationships matter. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so, like, 
let's start with that, <laughs> okay? And what it sounds like you're saying is that there is something about the whole process of, of, of purging, vomiting, right, that is linked to this idea that relationships matter, mm-hmm. right? And when we're talking about, so now we're talking about another phase in the action cycle, which is not just, okay, do I know I'm hungry or I'm full? Do I know what I want to reach out for? Now we're talking about how much can I actually take in and how far in can I take it, right? This is about intimacy. This is about can I take something into my inner self Or do I get to choose what I bring in and what I don't? Like, what is my relationship with what comes in and how far it comes in, right? And that's where our, the robustness of our, relation, of our relationship, um, our attachment system impacts when does that sense of safety stop, right? Because right? if I can't take it in, right, if I can't bring something really in, like, then it doesn't feel safe. You know, my whole system starts to go into lockdown mode. Now, there can be a lot of other reasons why, you know, where that's coming from. Right. So sometimes it comes from a history of violation. Right. And and not being able to say no. And this is how I say no. Right. It's like I can do this to a certain point, but I'm not going to. This is it. I'm going to draw the line here. And I mean, like, there's lots of different things that can go with it. And so, we again, we want to remain curious. We want to learn, build a process for how do we dialogue with the body? And how do we, you know, like that, that's the process that we really want to sort of um, engage with, with our clients so that, because a lot of times it, it can be, people can have difficulty with accurate hunger and fullness cues, being able to, to, to identify what they really want, being able to actually then take in what they really want or don't, you know, or be able to say no to what they don't want, you know, so it can be multiple places, which is one reason why we get whack-a-mole in terms of behaviors, right? Not just within an eating disorder, but then also other things as well. So yeah, I think that there's a lot that's going on. And also we know that the vagus nerve, you know, impacts the larynx, right? Which is more, more with what you're saying, but there's a tightness in the throat, you know, how, just how far down does it go? And then there's also nausea that can be impacted by our vestibular organization, you know, and when, when you'll, you'll hear people start to feel really nauseous often when there is the dread of rejection, social rejection. Hmm often yeah. lands as as not is like this dread and nausea in the gut when that attachment system starts to feel threatened you know so it can be coming from there mm-hmm. I, when you asked that question I, I wondered about disgust and shame and is that um 
how that plays into all this? Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. probably a huge topic, but do you mind commenting on that? To link it maybe just for a second too with the with the purging behavior. I know for me, I mean the research does support that a lot of a lot of purging behavior, not all, but a lot of times there is maybe some sort of sexual trauma or assault in the past as well. And so that is a a piece that I always explore and kind of look at. And oftentimes there's so much shame that goes along with that for people. And so then I don't know, Justin, if you're talking about the shame around that or the shame of the actual behavior, because again, purging can be very shameful as well. Um, And so I think, I think it, to me, it's all wrapped in shame. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, conceptually, it feels very much like it shows up in so many places. And I would say, yeah, both both maybe some of the driving forces and the actual behavior. Yeah. As, yeah. as I understand, um, disgust, based on what I understand from Peter Levine, is that disgust is like the impulse to expel the body of shame or of a toxin which might be shame. Does that sound accurate, Rachel, or no? So the... I think I see it a little bit different than okay. than that. Um, and I'm Please. maybe if I yeah I um, so one of the things with disgust is in, is interesting, and this I think is particularly true for people who have that high sensitivity where they're feeling inside things that are actually outside, is that they don't know how to differentiate between being disgusted and feeling disgusting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So there's this place of inside and outside getting confused. And so part of it is building the capacity to understand that, you know, what you're feeling inside is, is outside of you. Right. And who knows how that impacts purging and like that. The way that I describe shame from a somatic organization, like what is the somatic organization of shame? Shame is an implosion. Shame is energy that is supposed to be going outward that makes an abrupt about face and comes and travels inward. It's almost like this. it's, it's the emotional equivalent of of brushing velvet against the nap, right? You know, or something where it's going against, right? And so that's why people, and you know, there are some things we, we shame people for that they, you know, it's like, we, there's some things we want people to be shamed about because we don't want that coming forward. But most of the things that we feel ashamed about are things that have a natural place that, you know, so many of the folks I work with who have a lot of complex trauma are very ashamed of their curiosity. They're ashamed of their creativity. They're ashamed of their divergent thinking or their other intelligence. They're, you know, they're shamed. They're Harry Potter raised by the Dursleys. Again, you know, it's like their superpower is, is, has been told it's, it's horrible or this wrong. And so they're, every time they are trying to embody and fully come into being and then into the world, embody their bodies and then embody their world, they are, they're having to reject that and tighten, right? And so they can't, there's this jerky way of 
yeah. embodiment. Can I ask a question really quick right there for you, Rachel? So those clients kind of you're talking about, absolutely. I work with lots of them. How do you slow down and have them begin to embody without sending them outside of their window? Because I think for a lot of clients, even, you know, we start a group and we're doing like a mindful meditation, even like a self-compassion one, right? That should, should, quote unquote, feel, you know, good and ventral vagal and my voice is calm and prosody and, and, and that just, just slowing down and being in their body sends them out of their window, like no other, right? So then they have to start thinking about other things to keep themselves somewhat in their faux window. So right, yeah, right, right. You have to dissociate a little bit. Right, right. Right, in order to not spin out. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that's, again, where, you know, if if people don't know where their edges are and they don't have a good sense of, like, different things are going to regulate different people, right? So if they, if they don't have a vestibular organization that lets them know where ground is, having them sit and find ground, you know, it's like it, they don't know, they're floating up here, right? Um, I think also so many of these folks, the idea of being mindful, right? They, they think that they've got to be in a particular neurological state in order to be mindful or it is going to change their state like they have, right? So usually what I do with those folks when I'm trying to do, there's two things. When I'm trying to do mindfulness with them is I start out and say, okay, so we're going to do a mindfulness exercise. And they all start to go. I said, <clears throat> yeah, so before we start, notice what happens when you even hear the words, we're going to do mindfulness, right? And then I start to just track and contact. It's like, oh, yeah, some of you may just be like, oh, my God, you're thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be so boring. Or, oh, you, you know, I just start to have them track and contact state of dysregulation they're like yeah i just want to get up and leave the room you know so they're starting to feel that in their bodies and we go through it and all like that and i say okay we're done they're like what do you mean i said well we're just that that was it you were just mindful <laughs> that's great that's <laughs> mindful, yeah. right and it's like yeah. oh that's what it is right it's not about the exercise it's about the present moment right it's about yeah it's a it's not yeah it's just which about, is the exercise right right you know and so that is like, we got to meet you where you are. And being met is what helps you regulate, mm -hmm. right? That's what's coming. And where everybody is is going to be different. And some people, you know, they can orient to something either internally or externally, you know, some people can't orient internally. They, they're lost in there. They aren't get, they don't know where their arm is, mm -hmm. right? They, they can't feel their viscera. So we have to give them an experience, you know, like a weighted product to, to place or, you know, a, a, a physio ball to breathe into and to put into. So we have to give them an experience of the world through their body before they can actually have awareness of their body. Did that make, did that answer your question? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very yeah. much. Yeah. Right. I have to say it is about one 30 in the morning for me right now. Yeah. 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 
thinking that I'm gonna I, I already feel like I'm babbling nonsensically so you're not you're doing this is no you're not but I am like so into this that my concept of time and I'm so revved up just listening and taking it in but no I, I want to be sensitive to both your times um, this is I, mean, I love the I am so into it really and 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 Laura I think your your observations are right on target Mm-hmm. Yeah. I need to and come to your training. <laughs> please do. Please yeah. do. As yeah. soon as we can do that again. <laughs> do it, yes. yes. If you're curious on how to reach these incredible individuals, um, here's how. Yeah. So, um, I, like I said, I'm at Park Center in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And so if you just would go on the Park Center website, we have kind of more general contact information, but you could always just contact that the center there and people can, um, they can get forwarded onto my voicemail through that. And again, Dr. Laura Oyer, O-Y-E-R. People can find me at our website, which is embodiedrecovery.org. It's the Embodied Recovery Institute. And primarily what we do is have training, we training for eating disorder professionals. We do consultations with individual providers as well as programs. So we'd love to, to continue the conversation. We'd love to, to continue talking with you. It's really nice to meet you. And thank you so much for facilitating this, Justin. I really appreciate it. I learned a ton from both of you. Thank you so much. I'm so excited and I want to just, there's just so much more for me to learn. So thank you both for uh, for being a part of this. And I am You're really revved well. up to learn more. My God. <laughs> <laughs> This well, excites me. You. Rachel, I'm a huge fan of yours now. My God, I loved it. Yes, oh, me too. Thank you. Oh, Love you're it. so very welcome. You're so very welcome. I really enjoyed talking with you. And we all have lots to learn. I just want to say that. It's like we are all still learning. Polyvagal patrons, let me know what you thought of this episode and the members episode in the Patreon comments. And dear listener, this discussion was amazing for me to be a part of. I learned a lot, but also I got inspired to learn more. Some concepts clicked together for me, and it also got me wondering about things, specifically the topic of dissociation and DID. I think there was some stuff that she said, in, or that Rachel said in particular in part two here, that might lend itself to dissociation and DID. So it's got me curious about that, and uh, yeah, I want to know more. I want to learn more. I want to go deeper into it. But there was some new concepts here that fit in nicely with polyvagal theory and somatic experiencing and what I know about that. But I think that even though this was specifically to eating disorders, a lot of what we discussed is relevant to a lot of what you might be going through, dear listener. Being disconnected from your own body? Yeah, I mean, that's not just ED stuff, right? That's potentially all of us on some level. Not experiencing accurately the outside world and the inside world in unison? That's definitely not specific to ED. That's I think all of us can relate to that on some level. And so maybe these um, experiences don't lead to an eating disorder for you, but maybe it's, um, it's led to other things you're struggling with. Some way that you've adapted to this lack of unison in the outside world and the inside world. Something that you've done to create your own faux window. And I, I love that concept, by the way. But, but all of us, um, we, we adapt our behaviors and we create our, our own faux window, don't we? If you want uh, even more audio content from me, become a patron. Only five bucks a month. And on Patreon, you get hours and hours of stuff um, and not even just audio stuff, but also some other stuff as well. And uh, the audio stuff is on the Polyvagal Patrons podcast. A fun thing I added um, is that when you become a patron, I will drop everything I'm doing, create a welcome video for you and email it to you. Maybe, okay, maybe not everything I'm doing, but you get the idea, right? So within reason, 
for example, this morning I got um, two notifications that I had um, new patrons. And I, I checked my phone first thing in the morning, don't judge me. But I saw two notifications, I instantly, while in bed, without my makeup on or anything, I recorded a video saying thank you and welcome. And so these two uh, wonderful individuals got to see me in bed. <laughs> I hope you've learned some new ways to connect with yourself or, or with others through these past two episodes. Um, again, Rachel and Laura, thank you so much for being a part of this. I am so inspired to do more. Thank you. And your listener, bye. <laughs>